Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Cloud Unfiltered. I'm Ali Amagasu, and today I am joined by Alex Pay and Mike Place from SaltStack. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, coming on today. I know that I met your founder or one of your founders a long time ago at an OpenStack conference, and uh, I was really interested in, in catching up and finding out what's going on with you. So, so thanks for taking the time. Um, I'd love to start as we usually do by finding out how you got into tech. Alex, you want to start? Sure. So I, I guess it, for me, it, I come from that generation that bridged uh, the old world and the new world, if you will. So the tech started a little early with the old green screen word processes and moved into, I remember the screeching modems and just how amazing and awesome it was to be able to connect to a world outside of the small rural Utah town that I, I grew up in. I think I kind of started with that that love for tech there, just being able to see how how big of a reach it could have and those types of problems it could solve and the information it could bring to a place or a group or an organization that wasn't normally always integrated with uh, with a, the bigger, broader world. Uh, and just kind of grew a love from tech from there, moved into the bigger systems, bigger power, more, uh, more compelling software, and just kind of became a, a, a love and passion that and it drove me into the this career path, and it was fun watching it grow and from just being, you know, ones and zeros programming into a complete IT industry, and it's been a, a great experience for the last fifteen years or so. I assume you haven't been with Salt Stack that entire time. Um, have you always been with startups, or uh, where else have you worked? No, I, I've bounced around a little bit. I, I started my career while I was in college uh, with a company that grew up to become something called Inside Sales. Uh, I left there and went back to IBM, where I spent 10 years on the East Coast working for IBM and ultimately with their IBM Cloud products that used OpenStack. And then I returned back to, to my hometown area in Utah and worked for a company called Domo that does business intelligence and have been at SaltStack for about uh, two years now. Excellent. How about you, Mike? Sure. Uh, I started programming on a Timex TI-80 uh, way back in the early 80s. and. Um, uh, spent a bunch of time. I worked for uh, the University of Utah uh, back when uh, they were first uh, uh, deploying uh, internet access uh, across the university into Utah public schools and helped build that out uh, for many years. I spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, at Novell in uh, their advanced development group. Uh, I also worked uh, for quite a long time at uh, an independent uh, ISP uh, in Salt Lake City uh, that uh, is focused uh, primarily on uh, security and uh, uh, old school things like uh, Unix shell services and uh, Usenet and UCP and uh, things of that nature that uh, I certainly wish there were more of in the world today. And uh, I've uh, been with Salt, uh, I think, four and a half years now. Um, so since uh, the very early days of, uh, of Thomas and myself uh, writing code, uh, on little uh, tables <laughs> in a very tiny office. And uh, it's nice to see that uh, we've grown since that point. Now, a lot of our listeners will know uh, what SaltStack is, but some won't. So uh, can one or, or both of you give me a, a little description of, of what the company is and what it does and how it got started and why is it in Utah? Sure, Mike, I'll defer to you on that one. You've been here longer. Sure. Uh, Salt is a, a generalized automation uh, platform for uh, automating uh, any type of computing device uh, from the very small to uh, the very largest infrastructures in the world. Uh, it's written in Python 
It is an open source uh, project uh, that was uh, started um, in uh, late 2011, early 2012. And um, it uh, has uh, grown substantially uh, since then. At present, it is one of the largest uh, Python-based uh, open source communities uh, in the world. Uh, and uh, it uh, continues to grow at uh, an astounding rate. Uh, but uh, it is the uh, automation and management software uh, that uh, is typically used uh, to uh, provide configuration management services or command and control uh, services uh, to uh, fleets of machines to ensure that uh, they can uh, uh, do something all at once or that they are all in compliance uh, with a, a particular uh, designation or what have you. Uh, but uh, people use SALT. Uh, to automate all aspects uh, of their infrastructure from uh, connecting their uh, applications to the OSs that run underneath them to controlling their network devices uh, to um, reaching out and uh, um, in, in between things like CI CD systems uh, and deployment pipelines and uh, the list goes on and on and on. But uh, anything that, uh, that can be automated to salt stack uh, is usually in the mix there somewhere. Well, you bring up a good point. There's obviously other solutions that folks use. Um, you guys compete with Puppet, Chef, Ansible, uh, not to create a commercial here, but why would somebody choose Salt or Salt Stack instead of those other those other solutions? What's the advantage you guys bring to the table? Sure, I could take that. So, you know, I, I, I see this evolution uh, effectively in three phases. Um, we had, uh, you know, phase one uh, with uh, Mark Burgess and his brilliance in the creation of uh, CF Engine uh, in the early 90s. Uh, when Mark, you know, really foresaw uh, many of the problems that we face today um, and invented this idea of uh, stateful configuration management, right? The idea that uh, we can describe the intended state of a system and then we can build uh, software which effectively enforces that state. Uh, you know, Mark did this because he saw and presumably sees um, computing environments as being somewhat chaotic and being prone to failure, uh, being prone to uh, what he coined as uh, configuration drift, right? The idea that if we configure a system in one way on a Monday, there's simply no guarantee that that system is going to be configured that same way on a Friday, whether that's from another human changing it or from some sort of malicious behavior or from some corruption on a disk or from some failure or from what have you. Um, we always need to understand that uh, a machine state moment to moment uh, is never kind of guaranteed by anything in the universe. And so, you know, Mark did this, and CF Engine, of course, was um, was and is uh, a wonderful product uh, that brought us, you know, sort of through the automation space through the 90s. And then, you know, of course, um, in 2008, we had that seminal talk at uh, Velocity in New York City from John Allspaw, uh, who was at the time at Flickr, uh, called 30 Deploys a Day, in which he stood up on the stage uh, and helped to sort of bring this idea of DevOps uh, to the world, right? This idea that um, we can create cultures in which development teams and operations teams don't need to be oppositional to each other. Right. Um, and as a part of this description, you know, he describes some of the automation tooling that can be used 
to make that happen. You know, at the time, uh, Puppet and Chef, right, uh, were the big players in this space, right? Obviously, they still are. And um, uh, in doing that, of course, you know, the DevOps movement was born in that, I say, sort of a space too, right? Um, but, you know, one property of both the, the way that um, Chef approached this problem and the way that Puppet approached this problem is that they saw the description of the states of these machines as being best expressed as somewhat programmatic, right? Um, which is, you know, a, a fancy way of, of saying that, uh, in some sense, right? They saw this as an imperative software programming problem, right? Um, and uh, that was great, and that was wonderful, right? Uh, and they enjoyed and enjoy to this day uh, quite a bit of success. Uh, and then I think, you know, it's fair to describe a third wave of uh, automation software, and that's where you get uh, Salt and Ansible, who, you know, saw the same type of problem, right? Uh, but both said, you know what, we don't need um, these fancy, you know, DSLs, these fancy domain-specific languages, right, in order to describe the states of these systems. Instead, um, we can use uh, a data-driven approach, right? And so both Salt and Ansible uh, picked things up uh, with uh, YAML, right? And said, look, when we're going to describe a resource, we, we can do this in a, in a declarative sense, right? Uh, and we can uh, just use YAML and we can say, okay, give me this resource. And then it's the job you know, of the configuration management engine and of the automation framework that sits underneath it to go out and figure out how to apply that change effectively to a system, right? Um, so you sort of asked about some of the differences and some of the reasons that uh, I think SALT um, has an advantage. Uh, in that description, you know, I sort of compared the second wave to this third wave, right? Uh, one of the insights that I think SALT had here is that um, there we saw what at the time was this battle between a declarative approach and an imperative approach to configuration management as being a false dichotomy. Right. And we said, look, we think we can do both of those things. And so we set out uh, to try to build uh, a configuration management approach uh, that could come at it from whatever direction the engineer in question wanted to come at it. And I think that was a really powerful insight. The second thing that I think Salt brings to the table uh, that is really compelling is that Right now, nobody questions this notion that infrastructures are becoming tremendously more complex and complex in a nonlinear rate, right? You know, in the age of containerization, right, we're going from, okay, fine, it used to be fine. I had a data center, and in that data center, I can put 10,000 machines. And then we had virtual machines. And then it was, okay, I can have a data center, and I can have 10,000 physical machines, and I can have 100,000 virtual machines, and that's to manage, right? But now we're in this, you know, this age of containerization. And in data centers, we can have millions, we can have tens of millions of containers that need to be managed. And as we change from this, uh, this old approach of application development to this new idea of uh, building containerized distributed systems, one of the problems that comes up there is a problem of knowability, right? How at any point do you know right, what the state of this system is. Because you can't come to me and say, oh, well, I'm going to monitor 10 million containers in a data center. How do you think that's going to work? <laughs> right. right. Like, at, at no point can we ever know the true state of these systems. And that should be something that we should all be worried a lot about. That's ex exceedingly problematic. 
And so to answer your question directly, um, some of these other products, I think, are primarily concerned about what I call um, the birth of the resource, right? Um, they're concerned about the original configuration management problem. How do I take stock image X and turn it into application server Y? Right, I might need to install package A, B, and C, D. Um, same idea, you know, with Docker, right? And that's what Docker Run does, and so or Docker files, so on and so forth, right? Um, but again, because of this problem of uh, unknowability in these complex distributed systems, the argument that Salt makes at the end of the day is that you need an automation framework that speaks to the entire life cycle of the infrastructure, the entire life cycle of these resources as they're deployed, right? Because we need to be able to manage them much past their birth, right? But beyond that, um, we also need um, in these complex, um, potentially unknowable systems, we need to build out automation approaches that can respond to events, can, that can respond to the state of the infrastructure itself with some degree of autonomy. Right, um, so that uh, pieces of these infrastructures don't have to necessarily be top-down command and control in a hierarchical sense, right? Um, but that we can introduce automation that tries to listen to the state of the application, that tries to listen to what the OS is telling it, right? Or information about the CI/CD system, what deployment might be happening at that time. Um, ingest all of that and then make intelligent decisions about how the infrastructure itself needs to respond in order to keep itself healthy. Nice answer. Thank you. I got that. Is there anything you want to add to that, Alex? Yeah, I just kind of chime in on that that last part. You know, one of the things that we see is, as a critical piece as we move forward is what we call that event-driven automation or event-driven infrastructure. You know, as Mike so eloquently explained, uh, these infrastructures are just getting more and more complex. There's more and more to manage. There's more and more to listen to. I mean, it, it really mimics the world we live in where there's more data there uh, to be consumed, which should make it so that we can make better decisions based on that data. And that framework that Mike was talking about really stands on being able to consume those events, understands what's happening, and then take the appropriate automation based off of data rather than having it be a command and control issue that comes, like you said, from the top down. And so that event-driven automation, that event-driven viewpoint is one that we think is very powerful and it is key to the success of SaltStack moving forward. And really anybody that's going to try to manage one of these growing complex infrastructures that become, has become commonplace over the last few years. That makes sense. So, you know, some of the things you mentioned, uh, Mike, kind of got me thinking about the larger automation story. You know, you talk to SaltStack and some of your current competitors, but um, if I'm a if I'm a customer out there right now, or someone running, you know, an IT operation, what should I be automating? What are most customers already automating? What aren't they automating? That they that they what opportunity are they missing as far as automation? Absolutely, uh, I think there are a couple of things to say about this. Um, one, even though it sounds wonderful in a marketing sense to say that we should automate all of the things, <laughs> I don't think that's true. Um, and I think we need to be realistic about where automation makes sense and where it does not, right? Um, because there is just no universal truth to any of this. Um, and so it's extremely important to be judicious. And one way that we can you know, think about uh, how do we start down this automation 
action journey um, is that the first and frankly hardest rule is should be that we should not automate things that we don't really understand, right? And I think like that's one of the fundamental problems in this space, right? Is that whether you look at automation from a configuration management perspective or from a workflow perspective, it's all abstraction in the same way that programming languages are abstraction layers for uh, physical computing devices, right? We're abstracting away the, the complexity of the application. We're abstracting away uh, the, the complexity of what rides underneath, right? And so we need to think about whether or not that abstraction serves us, right? In some cases it does, right? There's a reason that, you know, sometimes we write things in C and sometimes we write things in Rust, right? And one of the ways that we make that difference, it, it, we choose between those things, is we think about the degree of abstraction that we want to have. And I think that we need to think about automation in that same sense, because uh, automation is fundamentally an abstraction layer for um, any type of system that it's applied to. Right. And you touched on something right at the beginning of that answer that I had another guest mention. He said, you know, you need to know, you need to build something by hand before you automate it. You need to know how it works. You don't just get to go automating things that you don't already understand. And I wish I could remember which guest it was so I could give him credit for it. But I think to some degree you were saying the same thing at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. There's this story that I tell when when I go out into the world and talk about this. Um, you know, some people uh, have read about uh, this uh, disaster in Galveston, Texas, um, that, that happened some number of years ago. Um, and not to tell the whole story, but it was an enormous explosion that happened because um, uh, ammonium nitrate was loaded onto uh, this large vessel. Well, what happened was, um, you know, it began to aerosolize, right? And um, it turns out that they had just built this new system, right, in which they could uh, steam the hold, right, if a problem was detected. Well, guess what happens when you add steam to uh, that chemical compound, right? <laughs> Something what, exciting, I bet. Right, right. Things got really exciting in, in a hurry. They built automation into a system that they didn't actually understand, right? Um, and, uh, you know, it's really easy to uh, create catastrophic failure, right? And if you don't understand the system that you're applying automation to. And we see that a lot when we go out and, and we talk to people that um, they more or less understand the pieces of the system that have been problematic, or they more or less understand the pieces of the system that they've built themselves. Right. Or they more or less, you know, kind of understand things because some other, you know, engineer was nice enough to write some documentation. Well, then they come along and they try to apply automation to that. Right? <laughs> uh, and things don't always go great. Right. And so I do think that it's important to use the automation journey, especially like when you're bringing this into something that's going to like be uh, a brownfield that's going to sit on top of uh, an existing application, an existing uh, infrastructure, that people also use it as an opportunity for documentation and for knowledge transfer and for understanding which pieces they really get and which pieces they really don't. Um, because again, otherwise problems might happen. <laughs> so when you look at the market, 
Where yeah. do you feel like there's the biggest opportunity for customers to automate that they aren't already? You know, I kind of would assume at this point, you know, um, there's a lot of things that it's pretty standard. We're, we're automating this part of our infrastructure. We're automating that yeah. like containers. Is that, is that still like a wide open opportunity or what, what's the opportunity for automation? <laughs> there, there is a lot to say about containers, but my honest answer to that is uh, networking, uh, is network gear. Um, that uh, there's so much work uh, being done in that field by automation vendors, including SaltStack and, and other automation folks in our space. Um, and uh, there is a lot of opportunity to do a lot of amazing things. Uh, Cloudflare, for example, um, is a company that uh, has invested really aggressively in uh, in network automation, and they've invested really aggressively in this event-driven story, right? Um, now, let me tell you about why that's important to them, right? Because they needed to, to go, okay, look, our fundamental business is responding to denial of service attacks. Right. Well, how do we respond to denial of service attacks? Right. We detect that they're coming in. Right. We sort of try to figure out what they are. But the other piece of that is, well, look, now network gear has to be um, either reprovisioned or reconfigured or adapted in some way because the infrastructure has to adapt to the attack. Right. Right. And look, automation, right, and configuration management and an event-driven approach are the proper set of solutions for solving this problem, right? So there's a ton of opportunity in the network space uh, for people to introduce automation. Yeah, hey. Oh, go ahead. To, just to add into that, you know, taking that the next step, we see a lot of customers that are coming to us right now talking about IoT use cases. And I think this blends into the, the network discussion, too. And, you know, they're trying to figure out how do, you know, I've got this product that works as a, a control for thermostats in hotel rooms. How do I manage all those things? What do I want to see from those things? Um, and it, it comes back to, you know, just those are devices that we can get insight into that we can start to let them uh, have some control over. And especially in that IoT world, I think that that's important because as they look at success, these customers, they're looking at exponential growth, right? They're, they're not successful with their POC of, of a few thousand nodes. They need to see that growth happen in such a way that they have many devices that they're out there managing. And to Mike's point, what, what we see them do is start with that POC, get, get an understanding and where they get success. And then of course, they're able to, to grow that opportunity uh, with the help of Salt and other, other management tools. So uh, the mention of uh, the IoT situation, and, and even you talking about the networking uh, automation, Mike, gets me thinking, what's coming in, in automation? I'd love to hear, first off, I guess, what's in the latest release of your product, Oxygen, I believe it's called? Um, what, what new functionality is there? And then kind of what's on the horizon? What's, what's exciting in the automation world? Right. We've worked really hard on our OpenStack support and our containerization support, um, as well as our network support. Uh, in the latest uh, release of Oxygen. And that's that's pretty typical for, for where automation vendors are, are moving right now because uh, there's so much opportunity uh, in all of those spaces. Um, I think the other part of your question was about where automation uh, is going in the future. And wow, there's a lot to say about this. <laughs> um, you know, I think some people, uh, improperly frame this debate, right? They improperly frame it as saying, well, is the idea of containerization and immutable infrastructure 
op oppositional to configuration management, right? Is it You know, uh, is it oppositional to uh, you know automation as seen in the traditional sense? You know, what threat, if any, does uh, Kubernetes you know pose to all of this? Um, I'm not particularly convinced by those uh, arguments, and the reason that I'm not is that every time we've seen an evolution in infrastructure, right, and automation has had to respond to that uh, that change, all it's done is it's changed the level of abstraction, right? The need for automation doesn't go away. So if we change that debate so that we think about distributed systems, right, as being a really big computer where every container is a single process, right, then, you know, why does, you know, configuration management may start to look more like orchestration, and that's all fine and good, but that's still a form of automation, right? So there's going to be some sort of evolution in this space as the way that we design systems starts to change. Uh, but uh, I hardly believe uh, that we're going to see anything but an increased need for, for automation uh, over time. Right. It seems to me like containers, by the very, the very way they're set up, um, yeah. involve a lot of processes that are kind of tedious and repetitive and beg to be automated. Um, and I realize Kubernetes does a lot of that. But yeah. um, I also feel like Kubernetes has left a lot of opportunities open, um, a lot of uh, kind of loose ends that aren't tied up that automation uh, products could deal with. Right, absolutely. I mean, that's one thing to say. The second thing to say is not everyone has a Kubernetes-shaped problem, right? There you um, go. And uh, Kubernetes absolutely solves a set of problems very elegantly. There is no question about it, right? Um, but, you know, Kubernetes is still um, it's still containerization with a scheduler and a lot of other pieces built on top, right? It's uh, it's a form of a distributed OS. Um, that in no way, I think, mitigates both automation, right, to under you know to control Kubernetes itself, right? Because look, the stuff is still running on real iron, right? <laughs> we still have to manage all of that. We're still going to have to manage, by the way, the deployment of the application onto Kubernetes. And I see Kubernetes as fundamentally being a distributed operating system. Right. And so, look, if we still have to automate above it and below it, that's the same way that we've still had to automate above and below existing operating systems. Right. It's just a change in the level of abstraction is all. That makes sense. Alex, how about you? What are you seeing on the horizon that's exciting as far as automation? Well, one of the things to, to point out with, with what Mike's been talking about, uh, we do have with salt, we go back to that first answer that he gave. There's a lot of things that we can do with salt, right? Like you can manage any number of devices. You can manage any number of OSs. Uh, the, the complexity continues to grow. And one of the things that we've, we've done at salt stack specifically is, is build an enterprise product that can deliver some um, common solutions and use cases through what we call our enterprise product. And one of the areas that we see a lot of traction, a lot of interest is around security. A uh, number of us just left uh, the RSA conference uh, and had some really interesting discussions down there about what people see as automation in the security space. Uh, if we talk to a lot of a lot of vendors, and we talk to a lot of customers, we hear that a remediation in a lot of people's lingo is uh, equivalent to a report that helps them understand what's wrong with their environment. 
uh, but it doesn't go that next step and give them what we call kind of an integrated action arm, right? And SaltStack is one of those tools that can provide that integrated action arm. Uh, we can understand what's going on in your environment. We can get a report that comes from uh, some scanning tool and, and take those events in and understand, hey, this is where your problems are. And instead of just pointing and saying, hey, it looks like your house is on fire, we can pick up buckets and go put that out, right? We can help <laughs> our customers take that step. And too often we see people saying, oh, remediation and automation uh, can stop with insight. And that's that's not what we believe, right? We, we view this as being a very action-oriented uh, space and one that needs to continue to be so. And that, that really dovetails well with the security world as it is today, right? As, as we walk, as you go through RSA and you talk to, to people and you sit in those, those meetings, there's a lot of concern about what's going on and being proactive about getting in front of these threats. Um, and providing insight is good, but not sufficient. And I think that's an area that's, that's going to be really important for SaltStack as we move throughout the rest of this year is being able to help our customers be more action-oriented, especially in areas where they see vulnerability and risk where we can come in and, and help them uh, kind of be that partner. Like I said, pick up the bucket and go work on the problem with them instead of just kind of pointing from the sidelines saying, you, you should fix that. Uh, and I think that's going to be an area of, of importance for us uh, as we move forward. That's great. So you bringing up RSA got me kind of thinking about conferences a little bit. Um, I know you guys were a recent sponsor of, of Scale, and I, I, I feel like you used to be, and you probably still are, um, very active in the, in the open source community. Is, is that true? Absolutely. As a company, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, Salt is Salt is open source, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, Salt is uh, open source Apache two licensed. Uh, it's a very active community. Uh, it's on uh, GitHub, GitHub.com/saltstack. Uh, and uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, Salt itself is open source from end to end. Awesome. So so I know you have a conference every year called SaltConf. Can you tell me a little bit about that? About when it's happening, where it is, what kind of people should go to it, and which one shouldn't? Alex? Sure. So we have an annual conference. Uh, this year it's going to be, let me check the dates here, it's going to be September 10th through the 13th. Uh, and and it's a, a great opportunity to come and learn more about, one, the community, how to contribute, how to participate, how to have those discussions uh, with with Mike, the developers, with with other customers that have been working with with salt and and kind of get lessons learned of, of what's going on there. It's also a great opportunity to come in and, and uh, get an understanding of where we're going from a product direction standpoint, right? This is an opportunity, not just for, you know, us to get up on a stage and talk about roadmaps from a product standpoint, but also to sit down and talk about your use cases and get an understanding of why you want something like salt, how you're using it, where you felt some friction and where you've had great success so that we can we can, you know, take that information and, of course, make it more valuable as, as we move forward. Uh, we we hold this event every year here in Salt Lake City um, at the Salt Palace. You know, we brand out the whole city and, and venue, so uh, so that's where where it's held. Um, and like I said, it's this year from the the ninth to the tenth of September to the thirteenth. Um, do you do any uh, hands-on tutorial kind of classes? Uh, things like like you might see like it, for instance a a Cisco conference, you know, we do a lot of hands-on training now. We didn't used to, but yeah. now we do, and that's one of our most popular things. You know, we have lines of people trying to get into our DevNet sessions, which is where we're teaching network engineers, you know, how to develop on top of our hardware. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the way the conference is set up, actually the first two days, uh, we have kind of a pre-conference training session. So we've got two days of, of training where you can come in and, and uh, work with both our PS teams as well as, as engineers on, on kind of the cutting edge, edge technology as well as your typical training courses. And then those last three days are, are the, 
the typical conference uh, experience. And so, yeah, we use that whole week to provide both the, the upfront training and then the, the conference content. Nice. That sounds great. Will both of you gentlemen be in attendance? Yes, we will. Speaking, yes, teaching, all that? All the above. <laughs> all the above. Excellent. Um, is there anything I haven't covered that we want us to talk about today? <laughs> uh, not for me. There's, uh, there's always more to say about the automation space, but uh, we certainly were able to cover a lot of it. Yeah, I really appreciate everything you shared. I know I learned some stuff today. I, I hope our audience uh, did as well. And I hope you guys will be on again in the future to kind of keep us updated as to, to what's going on with your company, because I think it's, it's an interesting space you occupy. Um, are you still doing a lot with OpenStack at all? Yeah, uh, we're still doing, uh, we, we have uh, very broad OpenStack support, like uh, I mentioned earlier. Uh, we've been working really hard on uh, making sure that's all uh, up to date and uh, is a first class citizen inside the SALT uh, ecosystem. So we're really, really proud of our OpenStack support. Excellent, excellent. So um, I, know, I don't know when the next OpenStack Summit's coming up, but I know that that's just fluttering through my mind now that you're speaking about that. Anyway, aside from um, SaltConf, are there other places that folks should look for you if they want to connect and learn a little bit more? Are there any places you'll be speaking or anything like that? Uh, I will be all, I'm all over the place. Um, and Give me a few. It's, it's not too hard to find me. Uh, I will certainly be at SaltConf. Uh, I will be uh, at the uh, Open Source Data Center Conference uh, in Berlin uh, coming up. Uh, and uh, for those in the Western US, uh, I'll be delivering the keynote address at Open West this year in Salt Lake City. There we go. And what's your Twitter handle? Or do you have one? I do have one. It's cached out, C-A-C-H-E-D-O-U-T. Very clever. And Alex, how about you? Yeah, my, mine's not nearly as clever. It's Alex Pay, A-L-E-X-P-E-A-Y. <laughs> That's what. That's the good thing about having an unusual name, right? That's uh, right. I, I knew when I signed up for Twitter, there were no other Ali Amagasus I was going to have to compete <laughs> with for the handle. I was pretty much going to be the only one. So. Yep. <laughs> well, thanks again, gentlemen. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, hand me any URLs that you'd like me to include in the show notes for guests who want to learn more about your company, about your products, about where you'll be speaking, and I will uh, will attach those. So, have a terrific Great. afternoon. And again, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.